Hey, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. This is our last morning. Oh, I remember at the beginning I said, yeah, we'll probably be here around six months, which is what it's been. And people said, how can you spend six months in one psalm? Now I have people coming up. You aren't going to do any more? No, this is the end. And as a matter of fact, the series on the sovereignty of God is over, or and the attributes of God is over, starting from his sovereignty and all the other things we looked at. We looked at his providence and goodness and mercy and grace and transcendence and imminence and holiness and justice and wrath and all of those great doctrines and attributes of God all contained in this one psalm. But now we are going to transition We are going to be in the psalm this morning, but we're making a transition. Because even though this psalm has many things to say about God, and God is the main uh, focus of the psalm, there's a greater theme that really overrides everything in the psalm, and it is indicated in the title. It's the psalm of praise of David. This psalm is not designed merely to teach us the attributes of God, but it is designed to move us to praise God because of who He is and what He has done. And so this morning, we are going to do something that is a little bit unusual. I think it's unusual because normally I don't spend this much time uh, going into things that I'm going to go into this morning, but we are going to do a little bit of... um, getting ready to study the whole topic of worship. And this morning, our emphasis is on praise, and we've already looked through the psalm in detail, and we've already looked at all the different words in the psalm in detail. And so we are just going to survey them and kind of wrap them all up together to remind us of what we have already learned But this morning, I want to do three things, look at three aspects of worship I want to look at a historical overview of worshiping God through praise. I want to do a biblical survey of worshiping God through praise. And then we will summarize the teaching of Psalm 145 as relates to praise. And in the weeks to come, we will look at worshiping God in spirit and worshiping God in truth and worshiping God as a way of life from John 4 and Romans chapter 12. But let's talk about this whole idea of a historical overview of worshiping God through praise. Most of us have either, well, we've either grown up in the church or we've come to the Lord later in life and then we start attending church. And most of us uh, started attending church and, and we just started learning things. It was kind of foreign, maybe new to us. We didn't really know how they did things or why they did things. We just came and watched and slowly learned that this is how you, quote, do worship. And most people never even ask why. And a lot of times uh, we end up switching churches or we move and then we go to another church and they do it differently. And at first it's hard to get used to because they aren't doing it, quote, the right way. And we can think that the first way we were exposed to is the right way and everybody else's way is the wrong way. And no doubt there are wrong ways of doing worship. Any worship that is not according to the word of God, any worship that does not come from a heart that is devoted to God with sins confessed is improper worship. But why do we do the things that we do in this church? Have you ever thought about that? Do you know why? 
Who says worship services should be done one way or another? What about churches you go into today where it's just really chaotic, just an emotional frenzy, where people are flipping around on the floors and just there's no order, people making animal noises, people, quote, being drunk with the Spirit? What about the comedian approaches where the person up front just just goes into one joke after another, tells a few funny stories and and feel-good stuff, a pop psychology. Uh, Are those services pleasing to God? Is that an acceptable form of worship? How about the, on the opposite side of the spectrum would be uh, old Orthodox churches, old buildings with old people in them. Pretty much dead. No one smiles in those churches. They come, get everything taken care of in an hour or less, deal with their solemn business, pay their vows, so they can get home. Service has to end at 11.30 so they can get the good seats in the restaurants for lunch. They've got some good doctrine, but the scriptures aren't really preached anymore. The gospel isn't preached. No one's saved and no one's being sanctified. People in those churches don't have a much passion to read their Bible, to serve the Lord, or share their faith. Is that acceptable worship? The church today is being pummeled by the world. And, sorry to say, is losing its focus, its understanding, and its reasons for worship. I was pretty amazed when we were looking for a music and worship pastor, how we would go to different people and and they were kind of screening them and I was kind of the theological griller in the process and so I would ask them questions. And I would want want them to to, uh, express to me why they did worship the way they did worship from the scriptures and most of the people I talked to could not do it. They did not understand the history of worship. They did not understand the biblical um, teachings on worship. They merely learned things from the school they went through because that's what was pop. That's what was popular at the time. They went to a seminar. They read books from, quote, successful churches. And they do things like other churches are doing because they're having results. And they never really get into the Word of God, look at the Word of God, and ask themselves, what does God say we're supposed to do? And it's really a shame because these churches, a lot of these men are very passionate men. And I think they love the Lord. They want to do what's right. They're just offering up forms of worship that are unacceptable to God. It's pretty scary when the church gathers together to sin against God. But the fact is, many churches are doing that today. And when you stop and ask yourself why we worship the way we do, and you look for answers, the first place you need to do is go to the synagogue, the New Testament synagogue. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews. And the first converts to Christianity were Jews. And they were used to worshiping in the synagogue. As a matter of fact, the early converts of the church worshipped in the synagogues alongside with the Jews who rejected Christ. And many do not realize this, but the reason we do many of the things we do is because the synagogues do them and have done them. 
The Jews taught that if ten men were in a city, Jewish men, they could start a synagogue. And they would create a little synagogue, usually a rectangular building, a building that uh, was not real elaborate. And if they had any decorations, it would be decorations that would be of plant material, vines, fruits, vegetables, things like that, because they didn't want to even come close to idolatry. They learned their lesson from the Babylonian captivity, and so they did their best to have very understated, plain churches, actually synagogues, very similar to our churches, where people could come, gather together to worship the Lord. And in large cities like Jerusalem, there were hundreds of synagogues. And just like we have different kinds of churches in, in Boise, or not Boise, Burbank, see, still there. <laughs> Burbank. It'll go away eventually. Still trying to get used to the air too. Rivers without water. Just like we have different churches in Burbank that are different, quote, denominations. And the reason they're different is they have different beliefs and different emphasis. And if you were to go to the churches, you would see things done differently and things taught differently and different doctrines. So they have different synagogues, which were the same way. Different people held on to different rabbis and different philosophies and different ways of doing things. So when you go there, you have a whole variety of synagogues, just like we do of churches. And the synagogues... The buildings, not only were they just rectangular and not really uh, elaborate, they would often, because uh, Israel was flat in many places, would put up a large pole on the roof, and that pole would allow people to see the synagogue from a distance, especially in a flat town, just like the spires on churches. You wonder why they... On the classic churches, they have those real sharp points that go way, way up there. So people can see the church and walk to church who live nearby. Not only that, inside a synagogue you would find benches or pews, just like we have them. And in a synagogue you would find a person who was the president much like the chairman of our elder boards. And you would find elders who are all co-equal in rank, just like our elders and deacons, just like we are going to have them. We just finished our deacon policy as elder boards have been studying that. And the, the elders dealt with spiritual issues. Deacons were faithful men who handled things like the offerings. And then there were clerks who dealt with spreading information and organizing information like our secretaries. And then there were sexton servants who were like our janitors, kept things clean and in order. And really, many of the things we do, many of the things we have, we have that are patterned directly after the synagogue. And I would imagine that before you came in here, most of you didn't even know that. But whether you are a church or a synagogue, there are the still, still the basic things you have to do and the basic things you have to have and the people you need to employ to make everything happen. And there were three primary elements in synagogue worship. There were devotion, which would include prayer and praise. There was teaching, which would include preaching and instruction. And then there was ritual, uh, different ceremonies they would do, like the rite of circumcision, things like that. And because they believed in the sufficiency of God's word, they usually would take all of their prayers and songs from the book of Psalms, and they would sing those and pray those Psalms as they gathered. 
And a certain person called a reader would read and then lead the congregation in prayer. Imagine that right from the scriptures, just like we do. And when the scriptures were taught, someone would get up front, usually sit down. They would instruct the congregation in the scriptures. There was a, uh, usually a portion of the Old Testament read and, um, from the law and from the prophets, and a section of that was read. The, um, uh, it was often translated uh, into the modern-day tongue or vernacular, and then what would happen is, is the meaning would be explained and the application was given and the people would be encouraged to do that. Imagine that, just like we do it. And then at the end of service, there was a prayer, and people often said, Amen, and they were dismissed. Just how we do it. Now, you know why the apostles wrote what they did in the New Testament. Why Paul wrote what he did about the church and its worship in the New Testament. It was patterned directly after the Jewish synagogue. One of the primary differences, though, is in the Jewish synagogue, the men and women were separate. You had the men over here and the women over here and a curtain or a wall in between. The reason for that is women are often very distracting to men, especially good-looking women. That is why in the New Testament, when the church no longer practiced this division and families sat together... That Paul instructs the church to make sure you women dress modestly and discreetly. That you don't use your body and or your hair or your wealth to dude yourself up to the place where you become a distraction to the men around you. So they can't worship God. And that's why we have that instruction. Now, during the first 100 years of Christianity, the church started meeting in the synagogues, but as the, the church began to witness and tell people that Jesus was the Messiah and the Jews killed him and that he was the only way to get to heaven and that they weren't under the law of Moses, then, of course, the Jews despised the Jewish converts to Christianity and began to persecute them, driving them out of the synagogue. This forced the church then to meet in their own place. At first, they would meet in the synagogue and then they would also meet on on Saturday and then on Sunday they would meet and celebrate the day of the Lord's resurrection, often called the Lord's Day, and celebrate the Lord's Supper and believer's baptism. But then later on, what happened is, is once they were driven out of the synagogue, they just began worshiping on Sunday exclusively. And what was interesting is, is at that time, the church was being persecuted, and so at first they didn't have a whole bunch of you know church buildings, so people just met in homes. And in Greek and Roman homes, because the architecture there, the, the, they often had a very large rectangular room. They'd find somebody, some believer with a large house, and one of the common things of architecture then was to have a large room and at one end to have a semicircular area called the choir. And in the choir, and you wonder where that comes from, now you know. And in that area is where they would then put a person who would stand up and preach the word of God. And the people would worship and then celebrate the Lord's Supper and have a love feast. 
And then as the church began to grow, they began to build their own buildings. And lo and behold, many of those were rectangular with the semicircular area called the choir where somebody stood up and preached. They had the same benches as the synagogue and the same components of worship. Now, what is also interesting, when you look at the early church, when the apostles taught in the new letters to the New Testament um, churches, and you, you read up on historically what they did, these are the things they had, basically six different things. First, there was a preaching of the gospel to the unconverted. Because the church was new and every pastor knew that it was common for unbelievers to come into the congregation, the gospel was regularly preached, Clearly and authoritatively, people called to repentance and faith in the gospel. Secondly, the reading and exposition of the word was the backbone of the service. People came to hear God's word taught and expounded. And at first it was the Old Testament only. Later on it was the teaching of the apostles as well. Third, there was prayer. Prayer in the form of petition, intercession, and thanksgiving. Fourth, singing at first Old Testament Psalms. And then as the church began to grow, um, different uh, pastors and theologians would begin to write psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that reflected the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And put them to meter and rhyme. And people sang them. Imagine that, just like we do it. Fifth, There was often read some sort of confession or creed. We've done that a few times. uh, Confession or a creed is kind of the cardinal doctrines of the church just summarized into a short statement to remind everybody of what the church believes. And sixth and finally, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper and or baptism. Just as we celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning and often baptism every couple of months. And so we do the same things. And this became and still is the basic practices and elements of worship in the church today. Now, things began to change though and they became to change for the worse around the 4th century AD. When Constantine became emperor, he was a Christian and he wanted to integrate government and the church, the state and the church, and this was bad. It was bad because even though Christianity was now allowed and people weren't being persecuted for being Christians in Constantine's empire, he began to add things to the scripture and require Christians to do things that the Bible does not require. The government began to meddle in the affairs of the church rather than there being some separateness so the church could do what they want and just being allowed to um, worship. They were told exactly how to worship and what days and feasts and festivals they had to keep. And pretty soon there was a very elaborate um, church year calendar where all these feasts and all these days Um, If you have a Catholic background, you know of all the different forms of days and feasts and celebrations and certain things you have to do that um, if you go to a Protestant church, you might not know about. Those all come from that church year calendar. And soon, though, ritual overcame substance. Soon, the... Prayer and scripture reading and exposition was just 
summarized into a very short, truncated version. The clergy became priests and took the imagery from the Old Testament and saw themselves as mediators, saw themselves as above the congregation, saw the congregation as unworthy and unable to understand and interpret the scriptures without their aid. And they would go into the choir area where the congregation was not allowed. You can see this in many churches today. You will see a little wall or a partition or some sort of railing so you can't get to where the priest is. Because he, like the priest of the Old Testament, is able to enter into the Holy of Holies, this area up here. And because people did not have personal copies of the scripture, and because the priests did not expound the word of God in an understandable language, they mostly spoke in Latin, a language that only scholars knew, the church sat there and heard sermons and messages and scriptures read in a language they couldn't even understand. How would you like that? It's still practiced today in some churches. Well, people soon became very biblically illiterate, but experts in ritual. They couldn't understand what was being said, but they memorized all the things, the ritual. And this led to the death of the visible church as the gospel was no longer preached. People were no longer saved and no longer sanctified. Satan convinced these priests who were in many cases, unbelievers themselves, to substitute the saving gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ by faith through grace, to substitute it for the sacramental system, which is seven sacraments people were supposed to keep in order to earn their way to heaven. That salvation was not by grace, but it was by works. And then what happened was, is people got so caught up in trying to do these things, and for very... Good reasons, because they were told, if you don't do these things, you're going to hell. And scarier still, even if they did all of them, and they didn't do them exactly right, and died with a mortal, unconfessed sin, they would go to hell. Jesus could not save them. And worse yet, is even if they did live a good life, and even if they did die with their sins confessed, they would still have to suffer in purgatory for millions of years, which is kind of a living hell for believers, so that they could atone for their sin. You wonder, why did Christ die? The church was really messed up. Satan had, in effect, supplanted the church with a dead form of pseudo-Christianity. The sacramental system took over, ritual took over, and this plunged the whole world into the dark ages. The very dark ages. Rather than teaching total forgiveness in Christ, the church taught that no matter what you did, you would still suffer in purgatory. And this gave birth to many false doctrines. As soon as unbelievers began running the church... People who didn't love God, people who were there for the pleasure and the power and the money and the wealth and the influence they could have from the position of being a respected clergy, a reverend. As soon as that happened, then Satan had these people teach many false doctrines such as the worship of Mary, the worship of saints, the worship of religious relics, uh, papal infallibility, all of these 
sorts of false doctrines. And it wasn't until the Reformation, and shortly before the Reformation, that God began to fix it. The first thing he did is he had somebody invent the printing press. Then he had men like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe come onto the scene to try and translate the Bible into the normal language of the people so the people could read the Bible. And what happened then is they began to be persecuted. Also, what happened at that time is, as Luther was raised up as a Catholic monk himself, he began to question um, the many practices of the church and began to vehemently oppose them. After his visit to Rome, he was so aghast at what he saw there, just the, just the rampant paganism and immorality and debauchery among the clergy that he just couldn't handle it anymore. It was that time he, began, he was saved by reading through Romans, and he began to question many of the teachings. Of course, he did that on October 31st by putting his 95 theses on the wall of the Wittenberg door, and that was the match that ignited the Reformation. And the reformers believed two primary texts which should be used to reform worship. One was John 4, which we'll look at in the next two weeks. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and truth. In 1 Corinthians 14.40, let everything be done in an orderly manner. Those two verses were the tools they used to reform the decayed worship of the Roman Catholic system. The first thing the the reformers did is get rid of idolatry, the worship of Mary, worship of saints, worship of image, worship of ancient relics, the need to take religious pilgrimages. They abolished indulgences. Indulgences are basically ways for you to pay so you can sin. You want to commit adultery? You go pay the church some money, you can go commit adultery. And the church was selling indulgences so they could raise revenue so that they could build large edifices like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And the reformers did away with many of the religious holidays and ritual observances and also five of the seven sacraments that were not taught in the Bible, leaving only the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Clergy were no longer called priests. The majority of the barriers between the clergy and laity were removed. Services were no longer conducted in Latin, but in the everyday language of the people. People were encouraged to study the Bible. Freedom in worship services was accepted as long as it didn't oppose the scriptures. The reformers then attempted to take the church back to its earliest form of worship, which we have learned came from the synagogue, and here we are today doing the same thing that the reformers strive to achieve in the church, having the same basic elements. And the reformers, after studying the scriptures and looking at the word of God to see what Paul taught and the church was to do, and the apostles understood that teaching was to be primary, and so they made it primary. Prayer was to be a part, so they made it a part. The Lord's Supper was to be a part, so they made it a part. They just went to the Scriptures and said, as the Scriptures say that, we're going to do it. Because of this, preaching, teaching, and application of the Word of God were the major essential elements in Protestant worship. Luther, according to Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church, aimed at the common people 
The women, the children, the servants, cursed be the preachers, Luther said, who in church aim at high or hard to understand things. He was never dull or tedious, usually stopped when the hearers were at the height of attention and then left them anxious to come again. He summed up his homiletical or preaching wisdom in three rules, start fresh, speak out, stop short. And that's what he did. Luther reacted against the Catholic Church keeping the word of God from people, so he translated the Bible into German, then taught very clear, easy-to-understand sermons to normal people. And at that time, the people were so ignorant that even the basic truths of Christianity were just blowing them away. They, they were marveling at the, the Bible that says that? And when they got their own Bibles, they just were enraged. At what the church had done to them. And the Reformation could not be stopped. In addition to that, many of the days that the Catholic Church observed were taken away, leaving only Easter and Christmas and Pentecost, which celebrated the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the festival of the Holy Trinity. But other than that, the very few days were observed. The emphasis on preaching and teaching continued until really the last 100 years. And then we saw a decay as the word of God was slowly set aside. You used to come to church, hear a sermon preached, sing a few songs, and go home. Now you come to church, you sing lots of songs, and maybe a little sermonette or a little devotion, a thought, and then you go home. That's how many churches have it today. Many churches have switched from emphasizing expositional preaching, systematic preaching through the Word of God, and they emphasize music and singing and making people feel good, trying to appeal to their emotional feelings so um, they can, you know, come to church and like, you know, a restaurant, get in and out, feeling good. You come to church... You get served up as fast as possible. You know, one of the major goals is brevity. I mean, if you can do it shorter, do it shorter. No use hurting people, torturing them. Music and songs. Earlier on, the church went from just singing the Psalms. Many churches still only sing Psalms in some of the Anglican Reformed churches. But as Psalms began to be written by pastors who desired to see the truths of Christianity taught, then a great upswell after the Reformers started and many great hymns were, were written. We sang an old one this morning. Uh, you know, Luther's A Mighty Fortresses or God is still around today. Many strong hymns with strong doctrine and theology. And then the church had a way to express not only the Old Testament truths, but now the New Testament truths in song. But soon the pastors and theologians and mature believers who wrote the songs, hymns, and spiritual songs in the past have today been replaced by immature, untaught, theologically shallow believers who have little knowledge of the Word of God, who do not have a firm grasp on doctrine and theology, and whose main motivation for writing songs for the church is to make money. This is what we see today. Now... Record companies assemble voices. They assemble people who look good. They say, hey, we're looking for some guys or some gals who kind of are very attractive. 
We want them to look like this worldly group, but we want them to be gospel. Let's go out and find them. So they select some people who want to get rich, which everybody does. They assemble them. They get their voices just right. They use them to sing songs that sound almost identical to the songs of the world, call it Christian, and they do it for money. For money. They are not doing it for the glory of God. They are not doing it to teach doctrine and theology and to praise God. They're doing it for money. That is why it is so difficult today for music pastors to come in because they want to have music that is contemporary, that it is good, but to try and find songs that are God-centered, theologically and doctrinally motivated is hard. It's difficult. Edward tells me that he gets all of this free music in the mail all the time and he rifles all through it and throws, you know, 99 out of 100 CDs away. And that's how it is today. Because truth is no longer an issue, but it is according to the Word of God, as we shall see in a minute. So that is kind of a brief historical survey of why we do things the way we do. Now let's talk about biblically why we do things the way we do. If I were to ask you this, when did God command that there be music and instruments in the church? Do you know when that is? When did he command it for Israel? Did he ever command it for Israel? When was praise commanded? At what time? Think about this. A lot of people don't know. And I was surprised when we were interviewing different worship pastors that they didn't know either. They had never studied the Bible. I mean, I'm not a music pastor, but you know, I at least look in the Bible to see what it says about things. I mean, I don't consider myself a, a worship expert, but listen, this book contains everything we need for life and godliness, and we want to do something, we go to the book. And that's what we have to do. So let me just give you a quick biblical survey of praise and worship. Now the first time the word praised is used in reference to God is in Genesis 29:35 when Leah gives birth to Judah. And she praises God. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word used in that text is Jadah, the word we get Judah from. Later on in Exodus chapter 15, there is the first formal song of praise to God. As Moses writes a song of praise so that the people who have been delivered from Egypt and who have been delivered from Pharaoh's army and who have passed through the Red Sea can praise God. And that's the first song. Later on in Leviticus 19.24 is the first real place where praise is commanded in the scripture. And it was had to do with fruit trees. I don't know if you've ever done this, but in, in Leviticus it said, if you planted a tree, you were to let it sit for three years and not eat any of its fruit. On the fourth year, you were to take its fruit and give it all as a praise offering to God. Then the fifth year, you could begin to eat of it. And so that was the first place praise is commanded. In Numbers 21, 17 and 18, there is a short two-line song, which many of us know as, Spring Up, O Well. You thought that came from Sunday school, didn't you? Well, it came from the old boring book of Numbers. 
The people were there and God brought forth rock and water from the rock and they sang a song, spring up a well. Now they didn't do the splish splash part, but we, we've, we've fixed it. From there on out, there was a couple of mentions of praise in Deuteronomy. And even though there was a very elaborate worship system, almost nothing was said of music. Just nothing. Praise, yes. Thanksgiving, yes. Song, hardly anything. It isn't until we get to Deuteronomy 32 at the very end of the book, right before they enter into the promised land. Now this is Moses. He writes the song of Moses, which summarized some of the great deeds of God and attributes of God so that the people would remember it, sing it when they went into the land to remember all the things God did for them and their ancestors. Then when you go into the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and 1 Samuel, there are only a handful of mentions of people praising God. Hardly anything. But then things change when you get into 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Both of those books have as their theme what? The life of David. And David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He had a great passion for music. And God used David to bring music, not just praise, but Praise through music to his people. David, of course, wrote about half of the Psalms, maybe more. We know he wrote, I think, 73 of them or 75 of them. Of course, the entire book of Psalms is divinely inspired, so we know God approves of it. In the Psalms are many, many exhortations to sing and praise and cry out and use stringed instruments and the lyre and the trimble and the drums and all sorts of things. Just use whatever you've got to praise God. Praise Him verbally through song. And the Psalms, divinely inspired, contain theological truth, which gives us a model for what we are to sing. We are not just to sing songs for us. And, I, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but music is not for you in the church. It's for God. It's not to make you feel good, to make you want to hip hop. It's not to satisfy your flesh and send you out with a good feeling about who you are and what you've done. Music in the church is about teaching. It's about worship, it's about praise, and the object is God. It's about pleasing God by recounting to Him and telling Him and thanking Him and praising Him and beseeching Him because of who He is and what He has done. In the New Testament, by the time you get there, you see Jesus praising God in Matthew eleven twenty five, and Jesus and the apostles uh, singing a hymn in Matthew twenty six thirty. And throughout the Gospels, there are references to people praising God when they're healed or something like this. And when you get to the letters of the New Testament churches, you find some interesting things happening. Just as the law of Moses says very little about singing, so the letters to the New Testament churches don't say that much, but they do say enough so that we know that it is God's will that Christians be singing praises to him. 
In Romans chapter 14, 11 and 15, 9 and 11, prophecies are quoted of the Gentiles being saved. And it says, and they will sing praises to God. So we know that the prophecies predicted that Gentiles would come to the Lord and sing out praises to God. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Paul is talking about tongues. And in that that chapter, he's discussing um, the, the need to pray and do things with your mind. And he says, I will sing with my mind. Not really a command to the church, just an illustration. Three times in Ephesians 1, Paul speaks of salvation being to the praise of the glory of God's grace. But the key text, two key texts in the New Testament are Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. And Ephesians 5.19 follows right in the heels of 18, which is, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then you know what it says right after that. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. This tells us that the natural outcome or outflow of the Spirit-filled life is to gush forth with praise and song, described as psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16, a parallel text, is very critical because in Colossians 3.16, it tells us the purpose of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly and with all wisdom and teach, wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with sermons. No. With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Did you hear that? That is why we sing. We sing the songs that we sing to teach and admonish the church and give praise to God in the same time. That is why it's very difficult today to find songs that are good. You look through these mountains of songs trying to find some that do some teaching and some admonishing, that have some sort of theological content which are God-oriented songs of worship and praise to Him. Instead of songs that talk about the worshiper and what the worshiper wants and how the worshiper feels and what the worshiper is going to do. We want to get down to the place where we're talking about God, who he is and what he's done. So those two texts are the backbone texts of singing in the church. In Hebrews 13.5, it tells us to continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. In James 5.13, it tells those who are cheerful to sing praises to God. In Revelation 5, 9 and 14, 3, it speaks of the saints in heaven singing a new song. In Revelation 15, 3, we see the saints in heaven singing the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. Talk about a time-tested hymn. Moses gave that hymn in Deuteronomy 32 right before they entered in the promised land, and we're going to sing it some more. So you might want to get familiar with it. I don't know if it's going to be put to a certain tune or not, but I'll tell you, we're going to sing it. Maybe in Hebrew. I've always wanted to know Hebrew well. So that is a brief survey of what the Bible teaches about worship and praise. All the way through the Old Testament, you see glimpses of praise, you see music 
And praise, theological, doctrinal praise through music heightened during David's time who instituted the choirs and the singers and the instrumentalists and all the way through the Psalms you read things about instruments of praise and worship to God. And that carried on through the New Testament and it carried on in through the church. Now you may ask yourself this, okay, now I've kind of got a historical survey, now I've got a biblical survey, so what am I supposed to do? We do everything we learned in Psalm 145. There's only 15 different ways we're told to praise God in Psalm 145. We looked at all of them already. Almost all of them are intensive Hebrew verbs, which means they are verbs that you are to just be passionate about. You know, you hit a ball with a bat... Well, if you have an intensive Hebrew verb about it, you, you blast the skin off of it. it. It shows great volition and passion in doing it. And almost every one of these words in Psalm 145 that speaks of praising God are almost all intensive and or causative, which means that they are designed to, to make you just bubble forth with praise to God. The word extol is used in verse 1, means to raise up. To make high. Secondly, bless is used in verses 1, 2, 10, and 21. Means to bless, adore, kneel before, or praise. Praise is used in verses 2, 3, and 4. Declare is used in verse 4. Meditate in verse 5. Speak in verses 6, 11, 21. Tell in verse 6. Eagerly utter in verse 7. Shout joyfully. Verse 7. Talk. Verse 11. Make known, verse 12. Look to you, verse 15. Call upon, verse 18, twice. Cry, verse 19. Love, verse 20. And all of those things, with the exception of meditate, are all ways we are to verbally praise God. You want to know what you're supposed to do in light of everything we've learned about God? You are to praise Him according to the Word of God. Psalm 150 puts it this way. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tremble and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And if you didn't get it, Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we are able to just look at some of these things this morning just to prepare us for what we're going to learn in the weeks to come. Father, we do pray that you would help us as a church offer up worship that is acceptable to you. Father, we do want to praise you with psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs. We want to apply what we learned from Psalm 145 and some of the other scriptures this morning. We want to be teaching and admonishing. And Father, we do pray for just Pastor Willis and pray that you would help him as he seeks to bring music and psalms and spiritual songs to us, which are glorifying to you, which teach and admonish and, Father, raise you up and exalt you. Father, we pray for the choir and all those involved in playing different instruments. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would use them so that all of us would have our hearts and minds focused on you. 
And Father, I pray that as we leave here today, every one of us will seek to praise you, not just when we gather together on Sunday morning, but as we walk in your spirit as an outflow of the spirit-filled life, as we have your word richly dwelling within us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.